Today on Walter Edgar's Journal, we're featuring a conversation I had with Dr. Janet Hudson from the University of South Carolina about black South Carolinians in World War I. The conversation took place at USC's Capstone Conference Center in Columbia on January the 30th, 2018. It was part of a series, Conversations on South Carolina History, sponsored by USC College of Arts and Sciences. Janet Hudson has her degree from the University of South Carolina. She teaches South Carolina history. Uh, she's associated with the Palmetto College, which is one of our outreach colleges. She has published a number of works, the most recent being The Great War and Expanded Equality, Black Carolinians Test Boundaries. This is a chapter in a book being brought out by LSU Press. I think it's already out, isn't it? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. It's scheduled to come out, which is really the topic we're going to talk about tonight. And Janet has twice won Outstanding Teacher Award. And when we look at folks to bring in for our conversations, it's not just if they're scholars, but can they relate to folks? And Janet Hudson certainly fits that bill. So Janet, with that lengthy introduction, welcome to our conversation. Thank you, Walter. I think in one, one way, you, coming third in the series like you have, your two predecessors have poached a little bit on your territory, but not in, the, not in the way that I think we're going to talk about it tonight. African Americans, when the war broke out in South Carolina, Governor Manning very much pushing patriotism. What about black South Carolinians in general reaction to, you know, we're, we're going to make the world safe for democracy? That was a gift. We're going to make the world safe for democracy, that President Wilson said. And just to try to step back and paint a, put a context, most Americans really don't know a lot about the First World War. When you're studying Southern history, World War I just doesn't stand out for you because World War I really didn't make significant differences in, in transforming the South it didn't really transform the United States. It absolutely transformed parts of the world. But there's a tendency in history to explain what happened instead of what didn't happen. And what I tried to do in my book about this period was help people recapture that sense of possibilities. Because for the African-American community, World War I was a tremendous opportunity. They sat on the precipice of what they thought was going to be significant change. The president had said, this is going to be a war to make the world safe for democracy. And immediately, that was the gift that they ran with. Um, I brought a few quotations, and I'll, just, I'll use their language, which works much better than me trying to paraphrase. As soon as one rally was held in Columbia the day before, was just knowing that Wilson was going to declare war. Immediately, in Charleston, in Buford, throughout the state, rallies were held by the black community for the very express purpose of stating their loyalty, their willingness to work in this war. And here's an example. This is in Columbia. We've had Jim Crow cars, Jim Crow streetcars, Jim Crow cemeteries, Jim Crow churches and schools. Now let's have a Jim Crow regiment surgeons, and a hospital corps. That's from Richard Carroll. In Buford, they wrote a resolution from their mass rally, sent it to the governor, and they say, in spite of the discrimination, the injustice, the lack of protection under the laws, both local and national, we feel that we are still citizens of this great country. And they go on to give a long list of wars that African-Americans have fought in ever since the American Revolution through the Spanish-American War. And they say, the same commitment we made in those wars we're going to make to this one, although we feel keenly the ill treatment of the Negro by our state and national government. Thomas Miller, prominent black politician, sent a resolution to both President Wilson and his governor, Governor uh, Manning at the time. And it's long, I'll just read you a little bit of it, but he says, I give to you at this hour of national calamity, offering the patriotic service of 30,000 American Negroes of my native state, 
to serve in the regular army and the navy of our nation. And I'll close. I bring their manhood for service or for sacrifice upon the altar of a nation, quote, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the principle that all men are created equal. And you notice in each of those statements the rhetoric of, yes, it's, it works two ways. We absolutely understand things are not fair, and we're absolutely going to do everything that we can. So this was a huge opportunity for them. That's how they saw the black leadership saw we've got to do something significant. Um, you may or may not know this, but on the eve of the war, the majority of South Carolinians were black. South Carolina was a black majority state. The leadership of the state was determined to support the war and deliver that support to the Democratic president. That wasn't going to happen if they didn't have the cooperation of the majority of its citizens. So the white leadership needed African Americans. And so that creates this dialogue. That creates an, an opening, a space for the black leadership. And throughout the entire war, much of what goes on on the civilian side is an effort to use that as an opportunity to serve the nation and expand African Americans' opportunity for greater justice, and particularly democracy. And then on the military front, they argue forcefully that we need to have black soldiers. It's absolutely what needs to happen because there's a strong history of linking military service with citizenship and with that coming all the rights of full citizenship. Well, you mentioned two names that folks may not recognize, but Richard Carroll, who was a very prominent clergyman, and actually, don't want to get ahead of you, but after the war, involved with particularly the religious leadership of South Carolina in terms of forming very early biracial groups, mm -hmm. committees, just committees. And then Thomas Miller, not only a political figure, but he was the first president of what we now call South Carolina State. So you're dealing with two of the most prominent African Americans in South Carolina who are making these statements of loyalty. I was particularly fascinated by Carol actually using the word Jim Crow, mm -hmm. but he used it in a way as later African Americans in Charleston uses, we want black teachers and blacks. You're going to have black schools? Well, let's have all black teaching staff. So he was saying we want black soldiers. And that, of course, is part of the story and something that you've done. I know a lot of work in, not just in South Carolina, but you've also done a considerable amount of work about black soldiers in North Carolina as well. Right. Exactly. When it comes to the experience of, of African-American soldiers, I know a lot more about North Carolina, but there are, there are things that hold true in, on both sides. And in South Carolina, I know a whole lot more about the civilian experience. So putting the two together. Well, we want the both. <laughs> Very early on, you've, you've had Richard Carroll speak, you've had Thomas Miller speak, you've had the, the mass rally in Beaufort, which, by the way, was the county with the largest black population, I think still, in the Georgetown, I think it was still Beaufort, and there's still black elected officials in Beaufort. The Beaufort plan had not quite gone out of existence. Mm -hmm. That was a plan developed in Georgetown and Beaufort after Reconstruction, where the white minority shared political power with the black majority. Certain offices were guaranteed to be for black office holders and Republicans, and some are guaranteed to be for white Democrats. So they've now had these addresses. So what, what happened? That, those are words. What's beginning to happen in the communities on the ground on the civilian side? There was about a six-week gap between the time of the declaration and between Congress actually passing the draft, deciding on it. And during that six-week period, there was an ongoing debate throughout the state about whether African Americans would be allowed to serve in the Army. And the rhetoric in this time period was really revealed so much. And another context you have to understand, and I'm sure you do because Walter sort of set it up, but I, I refer to it as white supremacy as much as segregation because white supremacy is an ideology, it's a belief system. And in this time period, that belief system dominates everything. And it is that belief system in the inherent inferiority of African Americans, that it is embedded in nature, it is God-given. 
And from that belief system, whites strongly believed that the society should reflect that, both the economic mm-hmm. system, the political structure, mm-hmm. the social structure. And of course, they had worked really hard to make that true with the resurrection mm-hmm. of segregation. So, and they used this term, unlike today, they used the term white supremacy on a regular basis. And it had shaped everything about the state, including the political system, because remember, a black majority state, if you had a democracy, <laughs> it would have a very different outcome. So they were very vigilant. The white leadership was vigilant to make sure nothing changed about that. But part of what kept that system in place was control. Having, when you're in charge of a system, you can control it. What the war did is it took that control away. Now the market changes things. Now the federal government has done things to change. The federal government can actually create economic opportunity that white leadership had tried not to create because we need a, you know, we need a cheap labor force to make our economy work. And on and on it went. So this debate was going on. Should we allow them Would they be worthy of being soldiers? And all of this talk is premised on the idea that there's a great honor with being a soldier. But when you think about the reality of being a soldier, you might also die. So then the discussion was, well, I don't know. If they don't fight, then more white people are going to have to fight. And then do you really want to lose your husband and your son just because this black man won't fight in the war? And on and on it went. a a huge discussion across the state. And meanwhile, the black leadership is saying, this is ridiculous. We should be able to serve as soldiers. And we should be able to serve as soldiers in arms. We should be able to have officers in training. In the end, of course, the War Department is in charge of a lot of these decisions about how they would serve. But Congress ended it when they instituted the draft, and it was very clear then everybody was going to serve. So there was that debate just for about six weeks, not sure what was going to happen, but all of a sudden it wasn't the state's decision. As soon as that happens, of course, um, the black leadership is working very hard to make sure that everyone supports the war. That was the position. How is the black leadership getting this message out to make sure that all black young men sign up for the draft? Well, a lot of it is through the churches, um, circulating information, reminding people. Of course, you may or may not know this, but 75% of South Carolinians, regardless of, of race, don't have um, more than an elementary education. So this is not a, a broadly educated population. And among African Americans, The education system, of course, is quite dismal. The average term was three months out of the year, and most schools were only for five years. So you couldn't, even though there were printed flyers, you couldn't always count on that. So it was really done word of mouth. The churches and the ministers played an important role in turning that out and putting a lot of pressure and saying, we expect people to turn out. And in the black community, but also in in rural communities, and this is still very much a rural state, the grapevine, the word of mouth gets. Yes. And of course, the notices came by mail, but not everyone received their notices. And there was a lot of problems with that. And there was an accusation that many African-Americans were deserted. They didn't sign up for the registration as they were told to. But sometimes people had moved. And they didn't have the right address or it was misdelivered. You can imagine when you have a mass mailing how you're going to have um, mistakes along the way, especially well, in a, a Janet, system I'm, like I'm, this. <laughs> when, when you said that, I smiled. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, because by this time, the movement of African Americans was, of course, one way they were disenfranchised. So I don't know what kind of mailing list were they using, because frequently at the end of a season, if you were a sharecropper, it was not unusual to move to another place, particularly if you were known to be a good worker, somebody... Mr. X over here would make a place and hire, basically give you a little bit better share and hire you away from somebody else. So, I mean, the movement of the black population was fairly constant. Absolutely. And the registration was often at the voter precinct where they were specifically told never to go to. So that created an interesting dynamic. And some large landowners have a motivation not to have their strongest, best workers show up for the draft. So there was a lot of complexity that went on in implementing the draft. One of the things I've loved about these conversations is I learn things. 
the federal government sent out draft notices to basically uneducated African-Americans who might have been moved three times in the course of two years. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you can imagine that you didn't always get your notice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't figure out how in the heck they assembled the list. I mean, yes, you had a census. You, you would have had the 1910 census, but even that wouldn't have been good almost 10 years later. Well, and the draft, of course, is based on your age, and the initial draft was 21 to 30. And I, I don't want to get sidetracked with my research in North Carolina, but anyway, I have a compilation of all these soldiers, and you can tell from that that many of them, there's two different ways to list their birthday. Sometimes it's your birth date, and sometimes it's the age and month. So many, many people don't even know the date of their birth. There's not always, you know, official registration of the birth. So even getting the exact cutoff of how old to be sure that a young man was 21 and not younger could have been an issue or that was he 30 or was he 31? Well, even for the white population in this state, there was no law, there was not a state law requiring that birth be registered. Mm -hmm. And most births were taking, black or white, were taking place at home. The vast majority tended by midwives who may or may not have reported the birth. So, again, I can, this is a decision coming out of Washington, and I'm just trying to get my head around it, operating in South Carolina, not just for the black community, but for the white community mm -hmm. as well. Well, there were a lot of decisions that came out of Washington that didn't settle well in South Carolina. Well, let's talk about okay. some of those. <laughs> well, of course, now it's been decided there's going to be the draft. You're going to train everyone. Now there's the decision about where to train people. Well, the War Department had a plan. First thing to do, as you, as you may know, there wasn't much of an army. The standing army was tiny, about 125,000. That was going to be very inadequate. So take the National Guard, state militias. If you can picture the United States and you picture 16 camps and they're spread out from sort of North Carolina, right at Charlotte, going all the way to East Texas, 16 dots across the landscape. That is, those were the camps that were for the National Guard. All the National Guard camps were in the South. The point of that was to get them here, get them trained quickly in a warmer environment. Now picture 16 other camps. These were for drafted soldiers. These camps were distributed throughout the United States and they were based on population. Of course, most of the population in the United States is not in the South. So most of those camps were not in the South. Four of them were. One was in East Texas, the other, so there were three main camps. Now these are three camps specifically for drafted soldiers. One of them was Camp Jackson, right outside Columbia. One of them was Camp Gordon, right outside of Atlanta. And the other was Camp Pike, outside of Little Rock. So Columbia, Atlanta, and Little Rock. The War Department's plan for training drafted soldiers was taking a traditional method of training them close to home because the logic was soldiers do better when they're close to home, more cohesive units, they know people, they're related, it's logistically simple. So that was the plan. Big problem. 85% of African Americans in the nation live in the South. If you're going to train people close to home, that meant African-Americans were going to be congregating right outside of Columbia, right outside of Atlanta, and right outside of Little Rock. The leadership in South Carolina, Governor Manning and the delegation in Washington, went apoplectic when they heard this. They said, you will not train black soldiers in arms, and they kept using the word concentrating them, it will be dangerous to the white population, they said again and again and again. Manning went to Washington to, I mean, he literally got a delegation of business leaders, went to Washington to essentially beg uh, Wilson's administration not to do this and for Baker to change his mind. And, and let me just add, South Carolina had fairly good political clout in Washington not so much with the Army, but the chairman of the Naval Affairs Committee was, had been Ben Tillman, mm -hmm. and the Gonzales family, very politically powerful, 
one of them was holding an ambassadorship mm -hmm. under, under Wilson. But this had been a state that had promoted Wilson for his first nomination. So there were very strong connections. And so the governor going to Washington with the group of business leaders was not just another political gesture. They had some real clout in getting in to see the president. Absolutely. And as was mentioned last week, this was right on the precipice of the, the violence, the mutiny in Houston that had occurred between black soldiers and white civilians. That's a complicated story, and there are different ways to tell that story, but a very convincing way to tell it is that the soldiers who went there had a responsibility to guard the newly created camp, and they were treated horribly by the local white population, including the police, who regularly harassed them, insulted them, and these black um, soldiers, who these were seasoned regular army soldiers, they were not accustomed to this. Most of them were not from the South. They resented this. They felt an obligation to support the local black population, and there became incidents between the police and the, the black soldiers. And there had been recent transfers of their officers, both their white officers and their NCOs. So it was this unique moment where their leadership, that there was a trust and a bond with, was gone. They had new leadership where they not developed any trust, and so that led to a conflict. But needless to say, because of that violence, this was this is the leverage that Manning and others are arguing, saying you can't do this. Long story short, because initially Baker did not, um, this was Secretary of War, he did not want to capitulate to this. He thought we've got, you know, we got a war to fight, we've got a plan, we've just got to be, we've got to move on. But instead, eventually the pressure mounted. And by October, he had relented. And when he did, the plan was changed. And this plan said, okay, we're gonna set a ratio of three to one. No camp in the United States can have more, can have a ratio that exceeds three whites for every one black soldier. But since the vast majority of African-Americans live in the South, Black soldiers had to be sent to northern camps, and white northerners had to be sent to southern camps. So you have this massive uh, soldier shuffle going on. That logistically took a long time. They needed to be segregated when they got there. These camps in the north weren't ready. So this delayed the black draft, uh, particularly for the North Carolina soldiers. They were supposed to be drafted in October, they pushed it back to March because it couldn't happen until they got the camps ready. South Carolina is different because remember one of those camps where the soldiers were gonna come was right here in South Carolina. Remember, South Carolina is a black majority state. They, when the, when the draft came, they were already being drafted because the, what the War Department said is we won't send soldiers from other, we won't send black soldiers from other states to Southern camps but we will require you to train the soldiers in your state. So it was a unique combination of South Carolina having one of those three camps, South Carolina having a very large black population. So African-Americans came and trained at Camp Jackson, but they were from South Carolina, and this becomes the origin of the 371st. These men started training as combat soldiers. Baker said, no, disband it we've decided that if you're gonna be a combat soldier, you have to be training in a northern camp because we're not gonna let you train as a combat soldier in the South. And so this division that was created for black soldiers, the 92nd Division, they were divided among seven camps in the North, which is another story. They didn't train together. But South Carolina was training a group of combat soldiers, which broke the new rule that Baker had set up. And I've actually seen this telegram um, in the National Archives. The general, the commanding general at Fort Jackson said, these men are doing a great job. I really want you to use them as combat soldiers. I'm convinced they'll do a good job. Please save them. So based on this telegram, there was some more correspondence, and they said, I think we need to hang on and wait and see if we can use them for some reason. So they kept training. For months they kept training, 
And then a purpose came when they created the 93rd Division and they needed a 4th Infantry Unit. So that's why the 371st here in South Carolina at Camp Jackson became the only uh, unit, the only infantry unit in the 93rd of drafted soldiers where the other three were National Guard units. So it's a quirky way that South Carolina fit into this strange story that they, that the white leadership initiated by saying don't go with your original plan, which is an example of how this commitment to maintaining white supremacy, white control, shaped everything about the experience of black soldiers. And since the decision was made in Washington, they didn't call it white supremacy there, they called it Nordic supremacy, which is <laughs> the term that was used in the North. Mm -hmm. So let's, you know, this isn't just a, a problem that's peculiar to white South oh, Carolinians. It's just, this is an American not. problem. But oh, it was, the whole idea of Nordic supremacy was very much in, in vogue in the 1890s throughout this period in reaction to the immigrants from Greece, Italy, and Eastern Europe. They wanted immigrants from Germany, England, Wales, and so forth. So we now have got the 371st trained at Jackson, and they're going to Europe. Well, as you may remember, if you heard this story last week, the 93rd, is, it's not a true division. It has that name, but it consists only of four infantry regiments. And they begin with 69, 70, 71, 72. And that's just for some clarification one of those was training at Camp Wasworth, and that was the story of the conflict with the local community. Each of these, there was one in Alabama and one in Texas, and there was conflict with the local community in every case. So Baker was under a lot of pressure to do something. Again, South Carolinians complaining to Washington. Pershing was also putting a lot of pressure on Baker. Send us troops, send us troops. And they weren't ready. So he says, okay, I'll solve a lot of problems. I will send these training black units from the National Guard units, and I'll take that, that, that unit from South Carolina that this general begged to keep, I'll put those together, and I'll give them to the French. And so they go in April of 18. All other American combat soldiers don't go until June, so that shows you how, how much sooner they go than others. And they serve in French uniforms with French weapons under the French command, and they don't, all four of those units do not serve together, they serve separately. So throughout the war, they begin in April, and they begin seeing combat in August, mm -hmm. and they serve from August mm -hmm. until the war's conclusion in November. Given the work you've done, what kind of letters are, they're now, everybody's a doughboy. What kind of letters are they writing back home? Have you seen many? Sadly, I have only seen one soldier's letters. He wrote three letters, and that's from North Carolina. Would love to find them. I'm sure that there are letters, but. But, but again, this speaks to literacy or the lack the lack thereof. Or conservation, you know, the aggressive effort mm -hmm. to, to make sure you reach out to the families and say, would you like to donate these to us? You know, right after the war, collecting mm -hmm. those kind of materials wasn't done. Well, it's, it's interesting. There were two chaplains from South Carolina, both Episcopal priests. In fact, one was the Bishop of the Diocese of South Carolina, Bishop William Gary, and the other was the Rector of Trinity here, Kirkman Finley. They were not assigned as chaplains to army units, but to create sort of a USO. And Finley in particular talks about helping young men, black and white, and he, he mentions that he had black doughboys, uh, write letters home because they could not write the letters themselves. So I, th I think you're, you're dealing with, with, uh, with some of that. Right, exactly. And there were letters, I mean, we know about their experiences in a wide variety of ways, but you do lack that personal connection sometimes when you don't have collections of them. But some people wrote the NAACP to complain about the treatment. And there were other complaints. In fact, the federal government had an agency to go investigate the morale of each of the, the camps. And these morale officers interviewed people 
and they talk about their experiences. But oftentimes those reports tell you about people stateside, mm-hmm. much less. And what we know about these soldiers are from their officers. And, and I can read you a quote <laughs> from one of the officers. This is uh, Richley. He's a white officer and he's from Lawrence. And he was one of the officers for the 371st. Now that in itself is interesting, that he was a white officer with with the black, all I mean, all the officers. But but the were. fact that he was a South Carolina off from South yeah, exactly. Yeah, that wouldn't necessarily yeah. be true. He says, "The whole regiment fought like veterans, and with a fierceness equal to any white regiment." It's because you could say the highest form of praise. They stood like moss-covered old-timers, even when they were surrounded by heavy fire and heavy casualties. Quote, they never flinched or showed the least sign of fear. Tremendous admiration, and their, and their French officer also, um, I restrained myself and didn't write it, but he had extremely kind and heartfelt things to say about the 371st and how they had served, as he referred to them as brothers in arms, who he says, we've made a connection of blood that will last forever. And the connection was, was significant. So these men, uh, they may have written home, and we just don't have their letters, but there are other people to testify to their heroic service. Their casualty rates were extremely high, and they were decorated with medals from the French. And we know that the, the only, for a long time, Medal of Honor winner for African Americans was in this unit, the 371st, Freddie Stowers from Anderson. And he was a part of one of these charges in September against the Germans. Mm-hmm. And later there would be another one who happened to be, he served with the 369th, and Obama awarded him this in 2015. And he has North Carolina roots. So North and South Carolina of the two only soldiers to receive that, that Medal of Honor. Well, let's talk some about the civilian side of the Black War effort here in South Carolina. Throughout the war, um, of course, the civilians have a lot to do. Raise food, raise money, very, very important, um, raising money. Supporting the war, not speaking ill of the war. So there was always things going on in the community and, of course, the camps. I think that's been discussed earlier about caring for these young women who were going and perhaps creating trouble for the soldiers. A lot of efforts were made. In South Carolina, the the legislature decides to create a, a home for wayward girls, but this is only for white girls. And there was lobbying to try to do this for for black girls, but the legislature refused to do it. So the women's groups just decided to raise the money themselves. And and Fairwald, that's the home that they create. And for years to come, they have to privately fund that because the legislature doesn't provide that kind of support. Well, one of the things that Kirkman Finley did when he came back to South Carolina to Trinity and then became bishop of a new diocese here, was work with that, the Fairwald home burned, and he then got, from the early 20s until 1929, he got a $2,000 appropriation from the General Assembly for the Fairwald uh, home. Yes, after many years of it being privately supported. and, And part of that was because he had the clout to use whatever, whether it was shame or guilt. He, he, put a lot of guilt trip on white Carolinians in the 1920s. His experience in World War I and his, his letters and papers, he talks about black doughboys. And I have a quote from him that I just... Okay. But it, it's, it's... I don't know who is sitting around chewing the fat, is what he called it. He said he overheard a group of soldiers talking about future life and the possibility of what would happen to them when they went back to the front. So. This gives you the idea of whatever his USO was, it was like a small in-country R&R place where folks could, because the front was so brutal. And he said, I did not like to hear the fatalism that I heard, and so I interrupted the discussion. And he said, boys, I have two heavens. The one I, have to, the one I hope to go to when I die 
and the one back in South Carolina. Between the two, I'd rather go back to the one in South Carolina right now. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, well, can I tell you another yeah. way that the civilian leadership worked? The Birth of a Nation was a film that was circulating the nation at this time. Very divisive film because it portrays African-Americans during the Reconstruction period in very negative light and shows the Klan riding in to save the day and you, you may be familiar with that. Well, it was scheduled to be shown here in Columbia and the black leadership gets together. There were 13 uh, leaders, ministers, business leaders, and they go to city council and say, you know, we have been supporting the war. We have done exactly what you want. And we think that this is going to jeopardize your relationship with the black community by showing this film. Everywhere this film has been shown, it's created problems. And so they petition, and David Coker, who's in charge of the Council for Defense, kind of wrings his hands and he actually contacts Washington. He says, well, you know, do we have this authority? Can we do this? And they said, well, you don't have the authority, but if I were you, I would probably try to figure out a way to negotiate this so that you're gonna have peace in your community. So he goes back and they come up with a deal and decide, well, they can't mandate because it's actually a, a private theater. This is a business, we can't tell them what to do. But they ask the owner if he would come and meet with them and they negotiate. And they make a plea to him, please don't show this film in honor of our support for the war, all the things we've done, our cooperation. And he agrees to do that. So that's an example of using leverage they couldn't have used at other times. So, so when it was showing in other South Carolina theories, it was not showing in Columbia. It was not, was not shown in Columbia because of the leadership. Uh, and Richard Carroll, again, was part of that group. He was, yeah. yes. Yeah. As was I.S. Levy. Okay. So anything else about the home front? Well, I would say in Greenville, there was an effort to require black women to work, mandate that they work, because these women were disappointing their white uh, employers by deciding they weren't going to work, because their husbands were now sending money home if their husbands were soldiers, and their allowance was $30 a month, which was far more than they made before. And their, the pay as a maid or a cook, as a domestic worker, was very low. So some of these women chose to stay home and take care of their own families. And this just created havoc in Greenville. So they wanted to have employ these worker fight rules and require it. And the black leadership in Greenville gets together with the mayor, and they have a whole public meeting about this. And he really just kind of talks them down and says, you know, you were just praising us the other day for the money that we've been raising. We've done such a good job raising money in town, and I think this would just be really disrespectful. And there were, the implication was that people wasted their money, and, he's, and he talked about thrift. He says, I'll be able to, I'll preach that to my community, and I'll enforce upon them the responsibility of being thrifty. But I think this is just, you know, uncalled for. And in fact, Manning was attending this meeting, and he said, well, I can relate because our maid left too. So it was like they were having all this problem of not having maids. So again, you have black leadership stepping in, trying to cool the heads of people getting all upset. And it's another example of how um, white South Carolinians were losing the kind of control they were used to having, simply from economic forces were working but, against but it, them. But it's, it's also interesting, and, and I think the, the theater owner in particular, that they listened and did something because that wasn't always the case. But $30 a month, that's $360 a year. And at this time, and, and if you were a white farmer, you, if you were lucky to net more than $200, that was a good year. So yes, these soldiers are sending home $30 a month. That's big pay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, just very quickly, Charleston leadership did a similar thing around the Navy Yard. The Navy Yard started hiring women to work to make uniforms. And they were going to have 600 jobs, but of course, blacks need not apply. And so they really argue that that's unfair, it's discriminatory, and 
it's kind of a long story, and I'll short-circuit it and say they were very sophisticated. They worked to get influence from outside the state to contact Josephus Daniel, who's from South Carolina, and explain how all this was unfair. And in the end, they were very successful at getting jobs for 250 African-American women at the Charleston Navy Yard making mm -hmm. clothes. So green is colorblind money. <laughs> Absolutely. Colorblind. So anything else about the war before we move into these young men coming back from overseas? Well, of course, pointing out that the 371st is the one we mentioned, but 90% of the other soldiers are serving in labor units throughout the war, doing heroic effort, uh, particularly in these ports as stevedore units, doing all of the loading and unloading of the ships of men and materials, building the roads, repairing the roads into the interior, and some of the hardest work of, of burying the dead, and, of course, they serve as, as cooks and all kinds of general labor, but just tremendous amount and a wide variety of labor as soldiers. So, so we talked in the previous two conversations about, you know, how do you keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? Mm -hmm. What about these young African-American men who they have served in the Great War? You had 10% of those from South Carolina who fought with Europeans and certainly saw a much wider world than a lot of folks back here. Um, did they really think that the war was going to be safe for democracy back here, make the world safe for democracy back here? They were going to make every effort to make that argument. These soldiers are returning in February of 18, and there was a parade held here in Columbia to welcome them home. And this parade ended at Allen University. And at the end of that parade, there were a whole series of prominent white leaders, including the governor, and a whole series of prominent black leaders, including the bishop of the AME Church, William Chappelle, and a host of other ministers, and they had all kinds of speeches. But in these speeches, they talk explicitly about, we fought for democracy, now we want democracy at home. We want these soldiers to have a man's chance. And they said what a man's chance was. It was in the voting booth. It was on the jury pool. They talked about increasing education expenditures, uh, more space on segregated cars. You know, sometimes you don't always dream big enough, but they were explicitly linking military service. This was in February. They had already had several rallies before that. Emancipation Day, which was celebrated on January 1st, big rallies in Charleston, in Columbia, calling for democracy at home. There was a conference in February here in Columbia. Same thing, meeting together. Let's get organized for voting. And they started doing that. Every Monday, we're going to organize voting. Of course, this leads to conflict. The cooperation that went on during the war ended immediately in 1919. 1919 is filled with tension as the African-American leadership pushes to make this mean something, and the white leadership makes it very clear that they're not interested in any more accommodating of these needs. And privately, in letters that go back and forth, in, in dialogue that goes on through the newspaper, there are lots and lots of tensions that arise. And there is a riot in Charleston. Of course, that explodes in May in, in Charleston. And this is a case of where it's really the, the fall. All, anytime there's these riots, it's very confusing what really happens. But it's very clear that the white officers from the Navy were most responsible for that, for creating the havoc in Charleston. There was, again, tension in the local community with the black, returning black soldiers and um, black business leaders in Charleston. And violence broke out at this gentleman's business. I think he was a barber. And then it continued throughout the night and just mayhem well, erupted. Well, you mentioned the, the naval officers, but it was white sailors. Yes, exactly. The, going the, into black, the black community, into blacks. And the, the sailors were, of course, not from South Carolina. They just happened to be in port. Yeah. But this was just one of many race riots in the country, but it was not one of those things that was swept under the rug. People talked about it. The newspapers reported it. Yeah, absolutely, because most of what we know <laughs> yeah. is reading from the But, I mean, you think later on, when you think later on, 
in the 1940s and 50s, many things did not get reported. The silence of the media mm -hmm. was pervasive. Well, the Charleston NAACP really begins to argue for compensation. And believe it or not, it, it doesn't happen right away. They, they try to put leverage on the Navy. They say that the Navy should be responsible, that the, it was their sailors who had caused this problem, and they needed to take ownership of it. And the Navy eventually brought some of these sailors to justice. They, they did have a, a, just a small number. But the Charleston, um, I guess the city government, yeah. paid, compensated the but, business owner for the damage that was done to yes, him. Yes, that there was property damage. Yeah, yeah not, exactly. not just not, physical right. fighting, right, but, exactly. but, but, right. but property damage. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, the hopes of 1917 disappear. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the NAACP. There is an active chapter in Charleston. And Columbia. And Columbia. Yeah, and Darlington. Yeah. And several others emerge. But this is really when they were formed, which is an example of how they were getting fired up and organized in ways that weren't always approved by the white leadership. Yeah. There was a great concern about that because it was, if you belonged to the NAACP, that meant you got a magazine called The Crisis, and there was a great deal of concern about that circulating in the state. Well, because... I hate to say feature, but one of the regular features of the crisis was publicizing lynchings and wherever they happened mm -hmm. around the country. And South Carolinians were reporting that information to the editorial board. Yeah. And uh, that was part, you know, in that when they held all these conferences about what they wanted to change, of course, lynching was one of the things that they yeah. wanted to see yeah. addressed. And some members of the white community the Reverend Mr. Carroll was involved in trying to have a biracial committee, not any kind of organization, but a biracial uh, committee. Bishop Finley was, was involved in that as well. And for his time, he was very outspoken. He was particularly angry about the fact that black veterans could not vote. In fact, he had a radio address in which he asked, and this was a standard speech he gave to the civic clubs around the state, how long will they continue to suffer in patient and silence, referring to African-American South Carolinians? How long will they continue to sing, my country tis of the sweet land of liberty for the white man? Now, this is the 1920s, and that's, for a white South Carolinian, that's pretty radical stuff. Mm -hmm. But he, he said they bled, they should be allowed to vote. Their children should have schools that are worthy of called the name of schools. Um, and that's, you know, he worked with the, the black women's clubs on the, on the Fairwall School, but still, this was not a commonly held view. Mm -hmm. He couldn't get his own diocese to admit black delegates to, the con to their state convention. The great hopes were dashed. Absolutely. Yeah. But they didn't go away because we didn't talk about, the, you referenced the Charleston um, effort to get black teachers in the Charleston schools, and that was successful, which was another example of taking this enthusiasm from this period to do something. But one of what they did is they, they got petitions from the local community to say they did this. And so when they brought it uh, before the legislature said we want to do this, they said, oh, the white a community said nobody really cares about this. It's just something the elite want, and they whip out these petitions that show 5,000 signatures representing 25,000 Charlestonians. So that completely killed that idea. But one of these young women who went out and got signatures on these petitions was uh, Septima Poinsett Clark, and this was the beginning of a life of activism for her. Mm -hmm. And of course, she would eventually open the freedom schools that. Um, Rosa Parks attended. And here in Columbia, Majeska Simpkins mm -hmm. came of age in this period. Her mm -hmm. mother was very involved in the local NAACP. She was one of the founding members. Mm -hmm. And so you have young people who are getting involved, planting seeds, making a difference. Later, I'll, I'll read you one more quote that's related to that, one of these. You've um, got some great ones if you want to read more than one. That's fine. <laughs> ministers. And see if this doesn't resonate with someone who's going to be speaking in the future. We pray God in the midst of shot, bloodshed, and shells 
that out of this great struggle for democracy, this was of course the war, a new democracy may be born, which shall measure a man by his mind and not by his face. And of course that did not come true in this time period, this hope that they had for a new democracy. But the seeds were planted and they're gonna be nurtured again and again and again. And so a half a century later, there's gonna be another minister who comes along and talks about that. I think different rhetoric, but, but resonates with that. And it was successful. So I don't think that it ever dies. Okay. Well, Janet, I want to thank you for being with us tonight for this conversation. And folks, next week we'll be talking about Southern progressives. So we'll see you next week. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was a pleasure having this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Janet Hudson. Officially, the topic was African Americans in World War I, the role of men in the theater of war in Europe, and what was happening back home. But we covered a variety of topics, especially the hope that World War I raised for many African American South Carolinians, what they hoped would happen when the war was over. Those hopes, sadly, were not realized in the 1920s. It was another 40 years before they would come true. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.